0: hey you're back at the faculty factory podcast and i'm kim skerupski and with me today is dr j m mcgregor dr mcgregor is here because again once again our faculty factory friend dr rachel salas said kim you gotta have this guy he's amazing one of her colleagues in the alpha omega alpha medical society so he's a fellow dr mcgregor is a colorectal surgeon He is the vice president of medical affairs at Alina Health in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he's an assistant professor at the University of Colorado and a trails director for the medical school's leadership curriculum. Is that right, Jay?
1: You got it. You got it. Okay.
0: I read an article that Dr. McGregor wrote in the um, the Pharos. it's winter 2023 the Pharos is the news newsletter for the AOA medical society and it was just such a great inspirational way that Jay described this what what jo- he cites Joseph Campbell that you are the hero of your own story and he talks about this narrative arc and I just thought it was so beautiful it kind of touches on history and back in the in the Greeks and we were talking about Odysseus and mentor and Athena and all these roots of um, academia and how and how just our our careers and our life journey can take us through so many um, trials and tribulations and kind of the, the hero wins at the end here. And and so uh, when Jay and I were just talking, we were, you know, kind of exploring how this story could go. And I'm telling you, he has laid out an amazing story with five subheadings. So I'm going to let Dr. McGregor take it over, and he is going to lead us on a fascinating journey. Dr. McGregor, take it over.
1: Hey, Kim, thank you so much. Thanks for that kind introduction. And I just want to thank you for the Faculty Factory podcast. I've been a listener for some time. It's a great resource for a lot of us, even if we're not Uh, lucky enough to be at Hopkins. It's it's just a great thing you do. So thanks, and it's truly an honor to be here. So thank you to Rachel as well for connecting us. This I've really been looking forward to it. Um, You know, like you like you mentioned, I hope that my contribution to the podcast could be from someone who wasn't a superstar in their uh, their journey through through healthcare. I'll kind of fast forward to the end. I love what I'm doing now. I, I. I love my job. I love how I can interface with patients and a healthcare system. But that wasn't always the case. And I just hope that's something that I can share perhaps for listeners out there or or students or residents who are maybe thinking about doing something else or even giving up on medicine, like the situation I was in not, you know, not too long ago. So that's really the message that I hope we can talk about. And maybe I'll just lay a little background and I can share some of the things that you know, the thoughts or the ideas that helped me go from someone who was ready to walk away from medicine to someone who really likes their job. As by way of quick background, I grew up in a family of physicians and surgeons, and that's a pretty awesome way to grow up. You know, a lot of great opportunities. I knew a lot about how healthcare and and medical training worked even from a young age. And I would say that really put the idea of becoming a surgeon as kind of my Mount Everest. It was something I thought I really wanted to see if I could do it I was laser-focused to get to that goal. Um, and in, in the process, um, I, I had some, some real challenges. You know, I had some, some challenges with the academic part. I had some challenges in residency. It seemed like any multiple-choice test I took, I, I fell short of where I thought I should be. But I still, I still was able to get to a, a part that I was very proud of to be a colorectal surgeon and be able to be in frontline practice which I did for about four years. I was taking call every other night. I really felt like I was making an impact on the community where I lived. But I realized that kind of like Mount Everest, once you climb the mountain, it wasn't where I wanted, it didn't really fit with where I wanted to stay. I couldn't see myself doing that for the rest of my career. And that for me was was actually a little bit of kind of a career existential crisis. Because I thought this is something I'd always wanted to do. I actually got there through some trials and tribulations. But then I thought, I just it doesn't seem like it's the right fit. And, and the prevailing wisdom, at least at that time, was you're either a doctor and a surgeon or you're or you're not. So that was really challenging for me. What was I going to do? I've now invested twenty years of my life to get somewhere that wasn't quite what I thought I wanted to do. So these are some ideas that I came across, read about, thought about, that helped me, and and maybe they'll be helpful to your viewers, and hopefully we can talk about them if if you want. Um, One idea is the concept of the adjacent possible. And what I noticed when I was in medical school, I had some friends who were in law school, and a fair number of their classmates in law school said, oh, yeah, I'm not going to practice law, I just want this education to help me in these other things that I might be doing. And I really didn't hear that in medicine at all. And I think it was kind of too bad that there are a lot of, there's such brilliant people in medicine. We learn so much about how to analyze a problem and be real world problem solvers in high pressure environment. But you don't really hear about people in medicine saying that they have transferable skills or the adjacent possible And I didn't really run into anyone who thought that way until I read a book by Jack Cochran, who's the the past CEO of Kaiser Permanente, that was called Healer, Leader, Partner. And he was a surgeon who became a CEO, and he attributed his surgical training to making him a very effective executive, and I found that pretty inspiring. Um, Another concept, and maybe I'll just list these off if that's okay. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but please interrupt me. Um, The other concept is the idea of the blue ocean strategy. And there are some now pretty well-known French management professors, um, Dr. Kim and Moburn, and they suggested this idea of a blue ocean strategy, meaning going where the water is blue, go where the competition doesn't exist. And I felt like in a lot of what we consider the American success stories, people have done that. But I felt like in medicine and and certainly in surgery, we're almost encouraged to go right into the heart of all the competition. You know, you wanna do a surgical subspecialty, guess what? There are a lot, that's what we'd call the red water. That's where the sharks are. So you're competing Mm -hmm. against these great people. And certainly at a place like Hopkins, there are lots of big sharks around and the competition is fierce. This idea, you can go to where the water's blue or the competition isn't, and maybe that's a real opportunity. Um, the other idea that I really like is the idea of the Pareto principle, that, tw- that 80-20 rule. Again, going back to surgery, I felt like it was kind of like the 98%, 2% rule. We were all working so hard to get into that top tier, um, but you realize that sometimes 20% of your effort in other areas can result in 80% of the return. And if you take the idea of squaring that, which was a fun concept I heard from a a podcaster and author named James Altucher, but if you were to square the Pareto Principle, so 80% squared and 20% squared, the idea is that with 4% of the effort, perhaps you could get 64% of the return. And I'll come back to that in a second. But I thought that was a pretty neat way of thinking about developing alternative skills that maybe I didn't have. I don't have to do 20, invest myself 20 years in another career, perhaps in my free time, I can get some version of my own uh, training or interest or development and get an awful lot of the return to to make me unique. Um, Which leads me to the idea of the talent stack. And this is one that I really like. I did not come up with this. I first heard of this through the creator of Dilbert, and maybe others have talked about this, but this idea that uh, if you think about the cartoon, a cartoonist, you don't have to be the best artist. You don't have to be the funniest person. You don't have to be um, the best writer. But if you can do those several things fairly well, you could probably be a fairly successful cartoonist. I tried to apply that idea to being a surgeon or being a, a physician leader, what if I wasn't the world's greatest surgeon, but I, I knew enough to really have that experience to be relatable? What if I had interest in strategic thinking? What if I had some business background? What if I had some legal background and I could put those things together into a very unique talent stack? And so that's what I decided to do. So I I got an MBA, but I didn't spend years only doing that. I did that in my off time. Um, I got a master's degree in jurisprudence, which is a law degree, but but it doesn't allow me to become a lawyer. But again, it's this idea, I was probably putting in about 4% of the time in comparison to someone who's just going into business or just going into law. But I had this big return on that investment Compared to people who'd never had that training. So I felt like as a surgeon with some business background, with some legal background, it created a very unique talent stack. Or at least that was my hope. And then the other idea, I'm sorry, I've been rambling, but the other idea is this idea of pay yourself first. And some of us may have heard this in the context of saving and investing. So if you want to save for retirement, Take that 10% out of your paycheck before you do anything else, you've paid yourself first. That way, you don't get to the end of the month and have to find out where your savings is coming from. And I, I thought that was a pretty interesting idea. And actually, John Grisham, the author, did the same thing getting his writing career started. He paid himself first. So rather than letting everyone up, everyone else fill up his calendar with his time, he put in the time in the day This is when he was actually a lawyer to say, these are the hours when I'm writing and I'm actually taking this out of my available work day. So he paid himself first as something that was really important to him. And so that idea of, do you have enough give or enough slack in the rope in your life to devote a little bit of time, maybe it's 10% of your time, or maybe it's less, just something that you're just passionate about, you're just interested in. And I feel like if you, or at least I was hoping that if you could do that, You can find where your interests truly are and then go more towards that and less of the parts of any job that that might be frustrating or or burning you out and so those kind of guiding principles were what allowed me to start taking some professional risks and the more i would take risks it seems like the more things would would work out and that's been pretty exciting so I'll stop, but that's kind of the the background um, of where I'm where I'm coming from.
0: Jay, I hope and pray, like we talked about, that you write this. This needs to be a book. Minimally, needs to be an editorial, an article. Yeah, Thanks, taking yeah. a risk. You are so courageous to do this. Not only courageous to to walk an unwalked path and chart your own path but also then to talk about it publicly as you obviously have done in uh, a lot of different invited lectures and so thank you for doing it i everything you've talked about you it's so anti-establishment anti what we're taught to like focus very deeply on something you have to be the expert in this specialize on that when I was in graduate graduate school, I remember the picture of the hourglass, the sands in the hourglass, the idea that when we're young in our careers, young as students, we're we're we get a lot of information and a big funnel. And our job as we go through graduate school, medical school, fellowship is to narrow, 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 focus, focus, focus. And then that focus part is where we get our international expertise and build our reputation and have impact. And then later on, we can broaden back out um, and then maybe have just have more diverse interests. That's just the way it's always been in my mind that one of the criticisms that I heard leveled to me and my problem was, you know, Kim, your problem is people may perceive you as being a mile wide and an inch deep, whereas in academia, we're supposed to be, you know, a mile deep and an inch wide. So I just... I like how you're twisting our minds and helping us think about another way of being. And so there, obviously I have lots lots, and lots of questions, but would you maybe, could you take us back? And I'm thinking of the faculty members who are listening to this going, amen, hallelujah. I want to know what were some of the things Jay was feeling? You described growing up with both your parents who were physicians. This was kind of like 20-some year journey at what happened can you recall when you were every other night on service what were you thinking what were you feeling when you were like whoa not cool is this is this all there is is this as good as it gets kind of thing can you re- take us back to that point where something triggered you that i can't this can't be it
1: yeah no thank you so um my my father both grandfathers, brother-in-law, are physicians. My sister's a dentist. My my mom was actually an art teacher. Just to throw that out there, um, but obviously also really valued education. So having a degree in a profession was, I mean, as soon as I knew what school was, it was important to do well. And and I you know I bought in. I thought as long as I do these things, it's really going to be. Great, and and it was. It was a very exciting. I mean, a lot of this process was very exciting, but the idea of actually being um, in frontline practice with two days of OR and two days of clinic and a day of GI and and being on call, I I just remember feeling as though it had gotten to the point where the things that kind of made me unique. I just couldn't do. I didn't have time for it. And I would say that led to that that moment where when we had our, I have two daughters, and when my older daughter, and we lived in the same community with my in-laws, which was great. But I remember one of these busy weekends, we were all getting together for a meal and my daughter asked my wife if my father-in-law was her dad or if I was. And that was one of those full stop, something has to change. you know that's that's wow. too far. So it wasn't at that moment that I said I just want to stop doing everything but I thought how can I how can I find a way to do this and still be connected with my family and have outside interests um, that may not amount to anything, you know drawing and photography, but how can these things, be a part of who I am but also not throw off what I've spent so long trying to cultivate and develop. I didn't know how I could be a surgeon and not be 100% involved and committed to it. And and I think this is still the case although maybe it's a little different now, but there was also people I mean people would say if you're not 100% practicing, you know, you've betrayed people or you've you know you're not doing what you should be doing in this profession and that that's a hard message to hear when you're pretty new and you're you're trying to establish yourself so i think that's the message for for you know whether you're a full professor or just starting as a pre med in college you really do have a lot of agency with how you spend your time and i think that message that there's only one way to do it it's just not it's just not true so and if you are the mile, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep and that and that really resonates with you, thank goodness we need we need those people, and they're invaluable. But I also think people that choose more breadth, even if it's sacrificing some of the depth, I think that's we're also in a time where that can really be fun. And it can also be very impactful as well with all the the Mm-hmm. The technology and the innovation. I think it's those people that that's perhaps stumble into some of these intersections who who really are doing things that ten years ago we couldn't even imagine.
0: Well, I, I agree with you, because you're, you're you're of course making me think of all the interdisciplinary disciplinarity that we all practice now, trying to not only um, collaborate with our faculty, colleagues from other schools and departments and institutions, but other industries. And so everything you're, you're talking about now um, it reminds me of getting even more creative. And uh, instead of doing sabbaticals at other institutions to learn, which may be valuable, this technique or this surgical practice or this um, research methodology, yes, yes, yes. What about going to um, manufacturing or an engineering plant or an aeronautical? And wouldn't that be wonderful if we could exercise our minds and our brains in different ways? And, and that also reminds me of here at Hopkins, we have um, our biomedical engineering students who they were working with medical students and just coming up with these just inventions just on the fly of things that you wouldn't. I'm like because i'm thinking well everything's been invented by now surely right is there anything left to invention i mean i was always mad that i could never invention anything because everything's always been invention already i remember in, in science fair so i'm like i always wanted to invent something but thought it was already already done but it is always amazing to see a group of people in a room who are from completely different industries and once you get the language synced up and what what can be birthed from that so yes, yes, why can't we extend our vision? But I'm wondering now, when you started noodling around with this and you started thinking about the adjacent possible, when you started thinking about what if, I wonder if, what did your mentors say? What did your dad and your uncle and your sister and your your, your wife were, was there any kind of um, pushback? Like, I can't believe, you know, you have invested a lot of money in this and what are you talking about? What is this going to look like? Fear, nervousness, like a mentor going, I can't believe you're going to let me down. Or you said earlier, the guilt of I'm imagining now I've got friends who are anesthesiologists and there's so few of them. And, and the nation has a, you know, we're, we're losing people in this Specialty, and so now you're talking about there's so few of you. You're a nurse, and you're going to leave nursing, really? Um, so how did how did that play out with people closest to you supporting you or kind of being disappointed in you?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I think one of the real secret weapons that I had was was my wife and my family. So the idea of doing something and being unhappy in it was just never I was never really pushed in that direction. So the idea that I was that I was making a decision or even considering something that could allow me to know my daughters better, I mean, there was never any pushback on that. So that's very I was very lucky in that sense. But I think the other part that um I now know, I didn't know at the time, but there are steps and gradations you can take. So I was in a community that had a VA facility and I thought, well, maybe being involved in the VA would be a six-month plan that allow me to really think about this and figure out what's next. And when I joined the, the VA system, they needed a, a chief of surgery badly. And I never really saw myself doing something like that. But I thought, well, that's something that, why wouldn't I try that and just, just try it, just see if it's, if it's uh, any different than the type of practice I was in before. And I, I really enjoyed it. It really, that was something that took me in a whole different direction. And then in that system, in the, this large interconnected healthcare system, there, there was this huge need for all kinds of physician leaders who were in the middle of their career not at the end of their career so that that became you know getting back to that blue ocean strategy i just kept saying yes to things so it wasn't that i went from saying i'm full tilt practice to just stopping but i i took a small step which then opened up these other opportunities and you know doing something like a leadership development program in the VA I learned a ton and I realized there weren't a lot of people that were doing that so that then put me on shorter and shorter lists for opportunities the other thing that's a real testament to my my wife and daughters is being willing to move which is a whole mm-hmm. different discussion but if you're if you're at a point in your life where you said hey I can not only apply for a position but if I get it, I can move my family across the country. I know that's just I'm just lucky that I had that ability. Not everyone does. but if you if you do that, if you can do that, it really does open up all kinds of other things because now you're meeting a new group of people in a different role. You get to you learn a lot when you're uh, making new acquaintances and and so it just it just kind of snowballs. So, I would say, um, if someone's thinking about making an adjustment in what they're currently doing, you don't have to go from one hundred percent to zero. Sometimes even a ten percent allocation of your energy into something different, you realize it can it can open up a lot of opportunities. And then the decision is, okay, how far, how far do I go with it? And not everyone has to go wholesale in a different direction. but I found, I just really enjoyed it. So I kept, I kept going down the rabbit hole.
0: I, I love that. It kept saying yes, because so often, I love how you're kind of doing this mind bending thing. We also teach our faculty and leadership programs to know was a complete sentence. Say no, say no, because if you say yes to everything, you'll end up having to say no to the important things. And this is another example of being flexible, adaptable and not saying no to things, but having the courage sometimes using wisdom, good judgment, and asking mentors and, and looking deeply into those opportunities, maybe that is a yes. And so I, I liked how you described the the blue ocean, your, your second principle, the blue ocean strategy of going, that maybe you do go in the red water to get your chops to get the training and then you quickly jump out of the red water because you don't have to necessarily stay there where the water is bloody and being chummed and you're fighting and scrapping and kicking each other. Um, but you do the training in there, you earn the credibility, you learn from the the experts and, and then you um, hop out of that and go into a different pool. So I, I liked also that idea that just because you're, you decide to go in a certain pool does not mean you must stay there. We don't have to stay. Uh and, and that's another kind of irony is that we don't want our faculty to me and you know faculty development, we don't want our faculty to leave. Certainly not. And yet we want our faculty to be to be successful. You want them out of the, the nest and be able to say, oh that's one of mine and they went on to do wonderful things there. And so there is a certain pride in in helping and sponsoring people to move to better, to greener pastures or bluer waters. So there is that kind of push-pull of how, how do you know when to stay in and how do you know when to get out of the water?
1: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I would point out that if this is a podcast that's reaching Hopkins faculty, I mean, just by definition, they have gone – Deep into expertise at a level few people in the world can imagine. So it's not as though these are people who are, you know, 18 and and sort of scatter scatterbrained, could never really decide what they want to do. I'm just offering that if that megawattage of talent wanted to explore something else to most of the rest of the world, that would be yes, we want that person on our board. We want that person in this this role or this activity. And I think in medicine, we very quickly say, well, I'm only the left eyelid surgeon. I don't I, I don't really know anything about the right eyelid anymore because we so specialize. We feel like we can only be the expert in our, our very small defined niche. But to the rest of the world, that medical education, that surgical education would have all kinds of applications where sometimes we feel like we're not perhaps qualified because then we leave our our comfort of the you know the the cloak of super world authority and and so it's just i think it's that comfort of saying even though you've been very deep into an area of expertise could you take a step out of that world to try something else and that so i think that's a little different than saying you're just you're just throwing it all away no perhaps uh, so I hope, I hope I'm not, I no, I'm no. not you're, in any you're, way you're, sounding like I'm encouraging residents to, you know, quit. To go residency. work at
0: Trader Joe's. No, 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 no,
1: that's, no that's, that. that's not what I'm, <laughs> hopefully that's not the message. No, no and I say.
0: love Trader Joe's, but no, I, I absolutely get it. I'm guess, I guess I'm going to an extremist idea of that. And I tend to kind of be an extremist. I'm like all or nothing. That's the point though. You don't, one doesn't need to be all or nothing. You don't have to be no. in the game or out of the game there are lots of games. And I like the way you've laid this out, This, especially this, the idea of the Pareto principle. Can you tell us more about that, the 464 that yeah. don't have to, because I can imagine some faculty members all around the world listening to this going, okay, this is intriguing. I can get behind this. Um, I'm scared though, because I have such intense pressure on me to generate RVU, to get grants, to write papers, to train, t- students and trainees and and build programs and serve on committees and make a national international impact ah all these you know the careerism weighing down on me and i do love music or i do want to learn more about um how the funds flow i'd love to learn more about engineering and how to make a device that i mean how do you so I guess we're getting back to the courage thing. How did you finagle the can you tell us more about that the Pareto 464 split?
1: Yeah, of course. So the the Pareto principle is the 80-20. So the idea that 20%, let's let's take your your patient census in the hospital. 20% of the patients that you're rounding on are going to take 80% of your time. And 20% of your grant activity perhaps it's the writing or whatever it might be is going to take 80% of your time. So it's really identifying that you don't have this equal distribution of effort and output. And I always thought that was very interesting, but I, I feel, or at least for me, you know, maybe again, some of this may be for how I felt like I was, I was working hard just to stay in the race. Uh, But, but to try to get to the point where I felt like I was really doing well, it was more and more time and and somewhat to diminishing returns, so it was really that question of, is do I think the rest of my career is going to be, um, you know, how can I take that low anterior resection that I was, you know, took a long time to learn how to do? How am I going to make that five percent more efficient, which which is great and very important, but to juxtapose that to say, well, what if I was a surgeon? who worked on public speaking, for example. Well, if I've never worked on public speaking and I put a small amount of time in public speaking, went to Toastmasters once a month, and then I had an opportunity to speak in front of the department, there are probably people who'd say, wow, that person sounded really knowledgeable. And it it didn't mean I was any smarter than I was a month prior, but that one hour on how to do a public speaking perhaps could be more impactful to my career than 10 hours working on a surgical technique that I already knew how to do at pretty much a world-class level. So it's it's that idea of where are you going? If you can find a little bit of time in your schedule, are you going to put it into the 80 to get a return that at best is going to be 20? That's That's one way of looking at Pareto or you're going to put it into the 20 where you're not experienced and perhaps get the return of the 80. And then just for fun, I just squared it. So the same idea, if you had 80% of 80, it's 64% and 20% of 20 is 4%. So that same idea that 4% of the effort perhaps could give you 64% of the return. And for something like business, for me, that was true. I had no idea. I knew nothing about accounting, but if I took an accounting class at night and didn't really worry too much how I did, well now compared to a room full of surgeons, I was the accounting expert perhaps, or or at least in the top half. And the same thing with taking a a class about contracts. If I took a course about contracts, now I know a lot more about contracts than most of the surgeons that I know, and that could be very helpful. So that, that was that idea of if you're fortunate enough to have an hour or two that you can spend how you wish, Are you doubling down on what you've already done knowing that that's a very competitive environment or are you trying something very new and realizing, Hey, maybe that hour I spent learning how to do PowerPoint presentations, actually using PowerPoint will make that presentation better. That could catch the eye of someone and away you go.
0: Differentiation. And now I'm so excited because You've just made a commercial, Doctor Jay McGregor, for faculty development. Okay. <laughs> what you just said is something that just made my heart like opposite of the or the Grinch. I just kind my heart just grew like ten t- times bigger. Yes, I love that. What you just said is if you have an hour, right? So this is where that hard decision is because, you know, Jay, you're so right. It might be if I had an hour. Um, and I chose to do something, career professional development. I could listen to a couple YouTubes about um, how to network. This is Kim talking, how to network and and make friends. I already know how to do that. I'm like a pro at that. I'm off the charts extrovert. As you're saying, that's not going to do anything more to differentiate me from anyone else or to differentiate me from me or even arguably to interest me. It's my brain, this is again me personalizing, gets lit up, gets excited, turns on when there's something new. So that idea of, oh, could we like spin the wheel um, and randomly pick something, not totally randomly, um, but randomly ignite a different part of my brain that I can now draw a neural pathway to something else that exactly will not only make me um i don't know interested in something new and could spark all kinds of new ways of viewing things and different frames and different lens to to of looking at things so i think that is a wonderful commercial for the Pareto in terms of making sure you you recognize that you could you could spend more and more hours so you're also so the idea of someone who insists on I am going to learn statistics if it's a if it kills me and I'm oh gosh I'm going to write another grant application and I I got to wrap my head around structural equations modeling or linear regression and how did that work again and you're going to beat yourself up because you think you have to be the expert in everything and you're going to spend more time and the idea of diminishing returns you you maybe you still get unscored. And you spend a lot of time trying to relearn something that is not in your wheelhouse, that you weren't trained to do, but you feel like you should do it because in academia, we feel like we should be the experts of everything and never ask for help. Or you could wrap your head around the idea that this is the law of diminishing returns. I could spend a lot of time doing this. It's really not going to pay off necessarily necessarily. I don't like it. I hate it. I'm not good at it. There are people right around the hallway from me, a whole department of people who will do this extraordinarily easily. That will help me in the long run. If I partner with a biostatistician, they win, I win. And now I have freed up an hour to go learn about how to mitigate or how to, uh, you know, get over conflict and
1: mediate conflict. Boom. Yep. I I think that's, you've got it. And I think it's, it's that feeling of, an hour, if you can just start with an hour a week, you know, can you devote an hour a week to something you just want to learn how to do? And if it happens to promote and develop your career in some way, that's great. But even if it doesn't, I think just that feeling of, hey, I have an hour and this is just Kim time. And I I know that many people listening today probably say, well, I have all these requirements, and my family life is busy, and and all these things. And that's all true. But I would just encourage to just give it a try. See if you can find an hour a week, that's four hours a month, for something that no one's going to grade or score. But it might be that little spark that, that adds to what you're doing. That would be great. If you can add to what you're doing, that's brilliant. And if it takes you a few degrees away from what you're currently doing you may find that there's a position or a promotion or a way to be involved in your current work environment that just because you've now differentiated yourself you're you're not really competing with anyone you're stepping into a role that that is made for you
0: that's a perfect Perfect explanation of the paying yourself first back to the old metaphor of the airplane, when the oxygen, that if it, if it brings, if it delights you, if it brings you joy and even just giddy silliness, I have a friend who's learned the ukulele over COVID and, and she's still doing it. And she has a, there's a ukulele band. And it, she literally starts laughing and can barely talk to me when she talks about the ukulele concerts they do. And, and it just, I am filled with joy listening to her. And so I, I'm thinking, I'm envisioning faculty members listening to this right now thinking, yeah, that could be on the one hand, again, an extremist version. Who's got an hour? That must be nice. When I have an hour, I need to be, I'm supposed to be exercising. I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm supposed to be taking a nap. I'm supposed to be finishing finishing my charting. Um, and yet how, Fulfilling is it when you consciously, as you said, Jay, make a decision in my calendar, like I talk about in WAGs, writing accountability groups, you put the hour of writing in your week and you start on time, you stop on time, you just write for an hour. That way you get into regular habit. You're not binge writing. You're not saying in your calendar, work on paper today, but you're saying, you know, draft paragraph two of the introduction today from two to three, you stop on time, you get into this routine. And so once you have something in your calendar, you've decided to do it, you've committed to it, it's for you, even if it is practice ukulele, you've decided to do it. You chose to do it. It was not something that so much of in our life is put upon us. And thou shalt, thou must, you should, shooting and woulding all over ourselves. But this is something (laughs) I want to do, right? And so I think, like you said, even if it's not, Well, that's not going to get you promoted. Is that going to get you another paper? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll meet a fellow ukulele player who's going to give me some wonderful life advice or who knows somebody who knows somebody. Or minimally, minimally, I'm going to come off of um, that hour feeling like happy, feeling joyful, feeling restored, renewed. And now I can go back into the OR, go back to the keyboard and write. And be back with my my kids and feeling more
1: full instead of always depleted, depleted, depleted. Absolutely, and I also think a lot of a lot of physicians that I know, th- there is great joy in feeling like you're improving at something, and because by definition we're so deep into our expertise, it can get harder and harder to feel like you're actually improving, even when you're at the top of literally at the top of the whole food you know food chain or the, the pyramid. and taking on something brand new, it really does give you that that joy of you can get a lot better at the guitar if you've never played the guitar before. And so I, I just I'm such a big advocate for that, just because it feels good. And if it if it happens to benefit in some other way, which I would argue it almost has to, because of how interconnected everything is in the world right now. But if it can benefit in some other way, that's even better. But um, just for, as kind of a mental health strategy, burnout strategy, and if you get some way that you can tie that into your next talk or paper, then even better.
0: Yeah, and it's all I like the way you're also setting this up. The way you're talking about this is it also contributes to this idea of changing the culture and and reducing stigma around burnout and this kind of self-doubt and saying, hey, we all get to the point in our lives where we're like, is this all there is? And especially when you reach certain benchmarks in our lives where we're like, okay, I just got promoted. I just got my first assistant professor. Now I'm an associate professor. Now I'm a leader of this. Now I'm a vice president of that. And you always think, well, once this happens, then I'm going to be fill in the blank. What? Rich, happy, healthy content, and then you do get there and you oftentimes were like, really? And so because we're all wrapped up in this kind of growth and discovery and knowledge, we're all we're all um learners just by virtue of the fact of where we are we do crave I strongly believe our our brains crave newness and knowledge. And so another thing I love about what you're talking about is i'm I'm a gerontologist and do faculty development so, I've been spending a lot of time the past few years thinking about late career faculty members and mid-career. And those of us who have this, I think you mentioned earlier, some little bit of existential angst of recognizing, oh really, yeah, this is the millionth time I've done this procedure, um, the 100th, 200th time that I've had a paper rejected and on and on and on. And you kind of go, oh, oh bother, is this it? You kind of Winnie the poo yourself. And so I like the way these principles, I mean, Jay, I can imagine addressing the adjacent possible, the blue ocean ocean strategy, Pareto principle, talent stacking, paying yourself first, all of those principles can be applied later in our lives as we're thinking, when I'm transitioning away from full-time employment, who am I, what is my identity, what is my purpose, what meaning do I have, what value do I bring to society if I'm not the colorectal surgeon? Well, part of that identity or creating yourself is applying these principles to, especially I can see that talent stacking, preparing for the next iteration of you, you know, while you can realize you can get off that, that record that's spinning around, or you can get out of that pool and what's over there in that blue ocean. So I like how these principles are adaptable, not only to early career faculty members starting off, like preparing them just because it is this way doesn't mean it has to be so. And then mid-career and Lakers. So your principles, Jay, really kind of are so, you know, a- applicable across our whole life course. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. This is really fun. The other thing that I, there's a great book, I believe it's called Strength to Strength. And huh in that book they talk about the idea that our our fluid intelligence peaks quite early and our crystallized intelligence much later so and just that idea of you know when you might come up with the breakthrough in math it's probably in your 20s maybe your 30s um and you know and and various disciplines you know you peak physically for surgery you probably peak in your late 30s or early 40s and that doesn't mean you can't still continue to do fantastic work but the idea of being able to work overnight without sleep and and be doing 12 hour cases and have your body do that it, it's it's very hard on you i mean it's it's a it's a wonderful thing i know there are tremendous surgeons who operate into their 70s but for most of us mortals your, your body your body really does break down with some of that physical demand, and being able to engage more of your crystallized intelligence, perhaps even your wisdom, if I can use that term. But that really is helpful, and it is something you can do for a long, long time. And I think that's also this neat idea that maybe you will be doing fluid intelligence activities in the first half of your career and crystallized intelligence activities in the second half of your career. And I think that's a way of you're you're really you're you're really utilizing how your your brain perhaps is designed to work. And you're not trying to just be, you know, doing doing cases for a hundred hours a week into your sixties, which for many of us, I think makes it even more challenging, more exhausting and and perhaps frustrating.
0: You're so right, Jay. I mean, literally what you said is what I've heard in the courses we run for new fa- um, next called the next chapter for our later career faculty, faculty around like, say, 55-ish and starting to think about what's the next chapter and, you know, not necessarily retirement, but replenishment. And I've heard exactly those words. I'm just as good as I've been ever in the OR. I can, I have, you know, perfect, you know, dexterity. I can do the surgery. I'm really good at it. It's just that when I used to be able to stand for long periods of time and then grab a bite to eat and come back in, I get more tired. It takes me longer to bounce back. So you're exactly right. The physical effort of doing that is is more exhausting. So, but it's everything cognitively is still there. So that is kind of the, you know, the challenge and the honesty and how you've just you know been so back to the courage. I have to get her back to courage, the courage to fight convention to just to poke your head up and say yeah you know maybe not maybe not so much maybe and i think that's the another beautiful thing about the generations coming up behind us that they're perhaps there's some evidence that they're not so enamored by um, some of these flowery traditions of the way we do things around here and and more insistent that they live their values and work with institutions and work for organizations that, that hold the same values and practice those and are, and have more, um, and have integrity. And so I think that my hope is that we'll see more Dr. J. McGregor's as we as we move forward and it won't be such a really how curious, you know, this doctor who was you know, a colorectal surgeon got an M.A. and a master's M.
1: S. Was it an M.S. Well, an MBA and then a master's in jurisprudence.
0: Juris. So is, is it M.J.D. J.M.J.P. I don't yeah, know.
1: Yeah, it's MJ or MJUR. MJ, okay. It's yeah, it's one of those degrees no one's no one's heard of, but it.
0: No, I it, I never knew that was a thing, and that would be something yeah. interesting to me because yeah, you just think oh, I would love to go this special. They weren't graded. It didn't didn't have to turn into assignments. Um, that's one of the beauties of just learning stuff just to learn stuff for its own sake. But who would have thought that one could dabble in these things? Yes, yes, and and a lot of the there's just so much potential there when i think we just spend all that time as you mentioned earlier being so narrowly focused that surely that our brains it's just i picture the brain going okay this one little sliver has made you a world-class colorectal rectal surgeon and there's a whole bunch of brain in there going well feed me feed me i'm hungry too i'm hungry too and it it's our brains are just so hungry to not only get new knowledge, but to connect with other people. Because where's all that knowledge? It's in the heads of other people. So I always say my brain is a zombie. My brain craves other brains. It wants other brains to light to light up. And so that just it's built into us. I think it's encoded in us to want to learn more. And so why not? Why not break the mold? Do what we're we're good at. Do what we love. Do what we're obviously meant to do. And not a but and be willing to explore and be courageous and feed the other parts of our brain and our souls. Right.
1: Well said, Kim. I couldn't agree more.
0: Ah, Well, you, Dr. J. McGregor, I told you folks, I knew this was going to be a great one. I would, I would love it if you could read um, his piece. I'm not sure if the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Society has this article, the newsletter, the Pharos winter 2023 edition, Maybe oh, I can put a link to it in um on the facultyfactory.org. So I'm gonna put a link to this article. It's so good. It's such a great read. It talks about in act one, the departure, act two, initiation, a third start, um, act three, the return. It's just it's just super good. It's a really, it's a really great read. It really feels good in the heart, and the soul, in the brain. Dr. Jay McGregor, thank you so much. I'm gonna leave the parting words to you. Because you're definitely the hero of the story today, but you say goodbye to everybody.
1: Kim, thank you so much. Um, it's it's just really a great honor. I, uh, Johns Hopkins is one of those places that I have admired my whole life, and uh, it's it's really I'm I'm humbled to be able to talk to you and and reach any of the faculty there. But thank you again, and thank you also to Dr. Rachel Salas. Uh, she's a great friend and. Obviously, without her her uh, connection, I wouldn't be speaking to you. So thank, thank you both. It's really been a treat.
2: Hello, everybody. It's your podcast producer, Casey. And I just wanted to let you know that as of September 1st, 2023, this podcast has had nearly 76,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries. On the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org has drawn nearly 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you, no matter where you are, to be a guest on this show. Our host, Dr. Skrubsky, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, and it's all recorded on Zoom, so no matter where you are, we would love to have you join her for an episode. As producer, I'll make any edits that you'd like, so there's no pressure to nail it on the first go or anything like that. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world so we can learn from each other. Reach out if you'd like to be a guest. You can contact us on facultyfactory.org contact, or you can email Dr. Skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu.